We thank you, Father, for this word. We remember that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that you would use it to heal and to help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are at week three, chapter three, in the letter to the Hebrews. And because the writer is a very fine pastor, I discovered that this chapter is basically application. And uh, most of you will know how meaningful it is when you're reading your Bible to have a particular verse speak very profoundly and powerfully to you, or perhaps you've heard a sermon which has ministered to you very meaningfully and you've been almost shocked to realize that God, the God of the universe, is speaking to you quite personally and profoundly. And I've just finished reading a commentary on the book of Micah, and the commentator had a section at the end of every little portion of scripture, which was called application. And I must say that I look forward to getting to that little section and seeing how he applied the word. And this chapter begins, chapter 3, verse 1, with a therefore. On the basis of what we've seen in chapter 1 and 2, therefore, this is what we're to do. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that chapter 1 was a picture of Jesus, which was a picture of Jesus as supreme and superior and wonderful and majestic. And then we saw last week in chapter 2 that Jesus has come and achieved a very great work of salvation, even through his own suffering. And we ask ourselves the question, so what? How would you apply this? And that's what the writer does in chapter 3. Now, before we look at his application, I want to warn you that this chapter is going to introduce a subject in Hebrews which will come up again and again, and it's the subject of persevering. It's the very sobering subject of, are you persevering? And you'll see it if you look at chapter 3, verse 6, if we hold on. And chapter 3, verse 14, if we hold firmly. And this perseverance, this if, is the test of real faith. It's the sign or the proof of real faith. Peter O'Brien says in his excellent commentary, genuine faith, by definition, perseveres. And so we may wish that Christianity had no ifs or buts, and then we say we would feel really secure But Hebrews and the whole of the scriptures teach us that Christianity is impossible without perseverance. And if you abandon your perseverance, then faith looks as though it's a dud. Or if I could put it more positively, one of the proofs that you're real and that you're safe and secure is that you keep going. One of the marks of eternal life is that you keep going. And this chapter is going to introduce the issue, but if you find it a slightly unsettling issue, you'll notice that the writer is the most loving pastor, and we've got two reasons for believing this. One, look at his language, chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers. We might say holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. He couldn't speak more personally and pastorally, and warmly, and affectionately, and assuredly with these early words. And you'll see it again in verse 12, brothers, and verse 14, we've come to share in Christ. It's not as though he's getting up, you see, and saying, 
Well, people, I don't know where you stand, but let's see if you can show yourself to be real. He's standing up and he's affectionately addressing them as brothers who share in the heavenly calling. The second proof that he's a very loving pastor is that he gives some wonderful help in this chapter on how you can be safe. He wouldn't do that if he didn't care for you. He wants you to be joyful as the Lord wants you to be joyful. And this chapter is a wonderful chapter because it tells us how God speaks to us and how to be sure that we're in his household and why we need other Christian people and why we need to be helpful to other Christian people and uh, what makes God angry and how to stay firm and safe to the end. All of that is in Hebrews chapter 3 and more. But do notice the perfect balance, addressing the believers as brothers and sisters and urging them to persevere. So that if you're a Christian this morning, you should be a person who has security. You should be able to say, I know Christ. I know where I stand with Christ. But you also should have a slight healthy fear of falling away. I hope you have both. I hope you have the security of saying, I know Christ. I know where I stand. And I hope you also have a healthy fear of not wanting to fall away. If you're a concerned person about your salvation, it's healthy. If you're a careless person, well, Hebrews may be exactly the letter for you. So let's think about it under two headings this morning. The first is focus your mind, 3, 1 to 6, and the second is guard your heart, verses 7 through to the end. First of all, focus your mind. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Well, it's easier said than done, isn't it? Hop in the car, your thoughts are on the road, back to lunch, maybe the tragedy of Sunday papers, and then there is the television and the computer screen and there are the magazines, and there is a massive amount of stuff which will take your mind. And so to fix your mind on Jesus has to be deliberately thought about and how you'll do that. And this word, fix your thought, is exactly the same word that Jesus used when he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount and said, consider the birds, consider the lilies. Look carefully, Jesus said, so you'll get the point and learn from the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. And it's the same word that comes up again in Hebrews 10. Let's consider how we'll provoke one another to love and good works. We have to fix our thoughts. And a key to uh, clarity and safety in the Christian life is that you put your mind on Christ. You ideally do that by reading the Scriptures That's where you'll see the portrait of Christ most clearly. But if you're not reading your Bible, perhaps you'll put your mind on the truths of Christ that you have heard or read or learned in your own study. And because these first century readers were in danger of minimizing Christ and maximizing their own ideas and their own feelings, the writer sets out some facts in chapters 1, 2, and 3 all about Jesus. And he does this because he wants his readers not to abandon Jesus. And I have to say to you that after being here for 21 or 22 years, I've seen many people who've sat in this church and taken roles in the church 
and have taken sometimes quite significant roles. And if you were to ask them today if they're following Christ, the answer is definitely no. But they've said the same creeds and they've uh, sung the same hymns and they've heard the same sermons, but they have decided to give up. And that's why we need a healthy, secure determination to keep following. Now, if we're going to consider Christ, the writer suggests a number of things we might do. First of all, verse 1, we might focus on his mission. We might remember his role as apostle, verse 1, and high priest. This is the only time in the New Testament Jesus is called apostle, but the word apostle means sent one, and there's nobody who is a greater sent one than Jesus. There's no one who's come on a bigger journey than Jesus There's no one who's had a bigger mission than Jesus. There's no one who's been more faithful to their calling than Jesus. And uh, I've been a Christian for 41 years, and I sadly am capable of great ingratitude toward Christ. I know that because I know myself. But when I do think about his mission, and I think about who it was who came, and I think about how he stayed completely faithful and kept saying no to sin and yes to faithfulness. And when I think about how he took on his back all my sins and the sins of all his people, and when I think about how he couldn't really have done more for me than he did, I find myself being less inclined to give up on him. He's the apostle of our faith. He's the sent one who did the work. And because, of course, he died and rose, he's also the high priest. He is now in the position of being the ultimate and perfect middleman between God and the human race. And we don't need any other middleman for our salvation or for our prayers. He is perfect. And he hears our prayers with great sympathy because he's been here. And he also hears our prayers with great power and resourcefulness. And you and I must not be surprised to see how our prayers this morning are practically answered. They've not just gone into the roof. The prayers that we've prayed were heard by him. He knows exactly what to do and he's got the resources to do it and he's wise enough to know how to do it. And so we shouldn't be surprised that our prayers will be answered. And if you think Christ has just disappeared or he's left you to live your Christian life alone, it may be because you've forgotten that he is at present your high priest, attentive to your cry, able to help. Now, a second area for considering Christ in verses 2 to 6 is his stature. How great is he? And the writer compares Jesus with Moses. And he doesn't compare Jesus with Moses just because Moses is any old character out of the Old Testament. He doesn't just pick one person and say, let's take Moses. Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, which the Hebrews, who are converted Jews, were in danger of elevating above Jesus because he was, as it were, dynamic. And the danger, of course, is to elevate someone above Jesus. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and the new covenant may may not look as impressive or feel as impressive or smell as impressive or sound as impressive as the old covenant, but it is. And so the writer shows us the superiority of Jesus over Moses, and you couldn't really compare the two. The difference is so vast, and yet the writer never criticizes Moses. 
He says Moses was faithful, verse 2, and he was faithful, verse 5. But friends, how great was Jesus compared with Moses? Well, we're told in verse 3 that Moses was part of the house. That is, he was part of the family. Jesus, the builder of the house or the family. How can you compare the builder or the building? Jesus is the builder. Moses is part of the building. One is the maker, called Jesus, one is the maid, M-A-D-E, called Moses. The second thing we see in verse 5 is that Moses was a servant, but Jesus was, verse 6, the faithful son. How can you compare the owner and the heir of everything, that's Jesus, with the one who's a guest or a visitor called Moses? One possesses everything, that's Jesus. One is part of the possession, that's Moses. And you'll see also that if you look at verse 2, Moses was in the house, but Jesus was over the house. So just imagine trying to compare Jesus and Moses. They're not just two humans. One is the maker and one is made. So uh, yesterday I was on a men's retreat and I went for a little walk in the free time up to the Baha'i Temple and it was empty except for the guide and I got into conversation with him, and he wishes, I'm sure, that I had never turned up to get in conversation with him. But I was basically asking him, what is the Baha'i faith all about? And as you know, the Baha'i faith is attempting to say that all the faiths can be drawn into one, because in the end, every religious leader is just a manifestation of the one. And I just explained to him that that is just completely contrary to the Bible. You just can't have a greater distinction than that Jesus would be the maker and that Buddha would be made, and that Jesus would be the maker, and that Muhammad would be made. There is just the vastest distinction between those two. And so um, if we're in danger of elevating a person, as the Hebrews were, and misunderstanding or minimizing Jesus, well, it's a great, great danger, isn't it? And um, it is very easy, even in churches, to replace Christ with somebody else. If you've ever been to St. Peter's in Rome, you'll know that you almost look in vain for a reference to Jesus. It's just a complete error. It's just a complete mistake. It's a complete distortion. But uh, let's not be too quick to um, look to others to make the mistake, because we can make the mental mistake as well by leaving Jesus Christ out of our faith and many churchgoers do, and partly because for some he's just too personal, too embarrassing, too confronting. But we may, isn't it not, is it not possible for us to put someone in the place of our devotion? They mean more to us than Jesus. That's a tragedy. In some people's cases, the person who they put in place of Jesus is just more tangible. Well, that's a tragedy because Jesus, the great apostle and the great high priest, is the one who stands in vast superiority to any other person. And that's why the writer says, with these very sobering words, 3.6, we're his if we hold on. Now, brothers and sisters, don't fall into the trap of thinking that your Christian security is based on your grip on Jesus. Your Christian security is based on his grip on you. When he says in John 10, no one will pluck you out of my hand, it's because he has a grip which is better than mine and better than yours. 
he has a grip to keep his sheep. And if you're taking a little kid across a highway, you know that you don't allow them to hold on to your finger, you hold on to their wrist or something like it to get them safely across. And the grip of Jesus on us is what causes our security. He will make sure we get home. But the question that the writer of Hebrews is asking in chapter 3, verse 6 is, do you have an inclination to be held and to hold him as well? Is there something about you which inclines to Jesus so that you're not just orthodox and singing the hymns and saying the creed, but you actually appreciate him and you want to walk with him and you want to trust him? and you want in your best moments to obey him. So that, you see, is what this writer says. Fix your mind on Jesus. His mission, that is stupendous, and his stature, that is absolutely superior. And is there an inclination that you want to be held, you want to be his? That's a good test. Well, the second section this morning is guard your heart. Uh, this week, inc- incidentally, I had a heart test, an ultrasound heart test, and um, the girl who was doing it turned the volume of the machine on every now and again, and every now and again there was a very loud slurp, slurp, slurp of blood moving around, which I was encouraged by. <laughs> and for those of you who think your pastor has no heart, I have a print to prove it. But in these verses 7 to 19, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, and a little further, don't have a heart that goes astray, and a little further, don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. He's not talking about the organ. He's not talking about the pumping heart. He's not talking about your feelings. He's not talking about your emotions. He's talking about the engine inside you that drives you. He's asking the question, what motivates you? What are you excited about? What are you organized for? What grabs you? What drives you? And because we're capable of great blindness, and so we'll head off in the wrong direction, and we're capable of great foolishness, and we make bad decisions, and we're capable of great selfishness, and so we'll run for what we want, and we're capable of great sinfulness, and so we'll just basically mentally block out any opposition. We're capable of great error and evil, and therefore we're capable of great danger, and most seriously, we're capable of getting God angry by just sheer perversity. And this is caused by having a heart that hardens, then goes astray, and then shows itself to be a heart of unbelief. And the writer who loves us, because he represents a God who loves us, gives us some very practical advice to make sure that our heart, that is our engine, is healthy. And just as my cardiologist gives me occasional tips for a healthy, pumping, temporary heart, this writer gives us some help to have a healthy, eternal heart. And I want to um, simplify it into two phrases or two sentences. The first is in verse 7 to 8, and it is basically, take care to do his word. Take care to do his word. It's one of the dangers, isn't it, when we come and we hear a talk 
and we say, six out of ten, that was okay. Now I'm going to completely forget it. It doesn't matter what it said. I'm just not going to do anything. Nothing's going to happen. And uh, there are times where I have preached the sermon and I go home having said to you something that is really quite simple and plain, and suddenly I find myself needing to actually do what I've just been preaching. And it's almost as though I have to preach the sermon to myself when I get home, having preached it to others. And you and I must seek to get into the habit of working out what the text is telling us to do and then seeking to do it. So everything in the Christian life, you may not be very clear at the moment. You may not even feel particularly keen. You may be in a bit of a spiritual fog and a time of doubt and sadness at the moment. And the Bible's advice is put into practice what you know. Don't beat yourself up. Don't burden yourself overly. But just put into practice what you know and don't walk in the paths that you know are dangerous. And the writer quotes from Psalm 95, which describes the tragedy of the Israelites because they heard the word of God as they are traveling from Egypt to the promised land, and they hardened their hearts and they tested God and they angered God and they missed the land. Now, when we hear that the Israelites missed the promised land, there are two dangers, I think. One is to despair, and you'll say to yourself, well, what hope do I have? They sinned and they missed out on everything. I sin, will I miss out on everything? I think we need to be very careful to realize that when the Bible says that the Israelites missed out on the promised land, they missed out on the soil of Canaan. I don't think the Bible is necessarily telling us that these people went to hell. I don't want to minimize the danger of what the writer is saying, but they missed out on the land. They missed out on the promised land. Moses missed out on the promised land. There's something much bigger than getting to the Middle East, and that's getting to glory, getting to the new heavens and the new earth. And what the writer is simply saying to us is, remember that the Israelites missed out on the land of Canaan. Learn from them so that you don't harden your heart, go astray, fall into unbelief and apostatize and miss out on eternal life. That's the danger. So don't despair as if one slip will cost you everything, but learn from the Israelites that it is possible to miss out if you're beginning to go astray, leads to something much more serious, especially apostasy. The other danger, of course, when we read this is that we just say, oh, I don't really care. They were sort of poor Israelites and I'm a Christian and everything's all safe and secure. And so we miss the very real warning, which is that we're capable of hardening and drifting and declining and some people do it in front of our eyes. So we need to make sure that we don't despair in the face of this and at the same time that we don't get completely careless. You and I need to concentrate on surrendering to the Word of God and doing it. There's the first. Do the Word. Is there something that you're very clear on at the moment that you shouldn't do because of the Word of God? Don't do it. Is there something you're very clear that you should do because of the Word of God? Do it. That's the way to keep your heart healthy. That's the way to make sure that the engine of your life is moving you in the right direction. 
And the second thing is that, uh, the second piece of heart wisdom is that we must stir up God's people. Verse 13, we must encourage one another. Literally, the word is the parakaleo word, to come alongside. It's the word that's used for the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. And of course, if you think that this word just means to be positive all the time, you know that at the end of the letter in chapter 13, the writer says, I have written this to encourage you. And of course, the letter does much more than be positive. The letter sometimes admonishes and corrects and rebukes and is supportive and is comforting. And there's a whole range of things that we're to do when we come alongside And we are to be those who come alongside one another to keep us going forward. And if I might say, and I hadn't planned to say this, if I might say this is never going to work if we fall into the trap of just being around every third, fourth or fifth week. We're never going to have this ministry. We're never going to get this ministry. So let's do our best as long as we are able, as much as we are able, to get alongside, to stir one another up to love and good works. Sin is very deceitful. Our hearts are very deceitful. We need daily stirring. I know what I'm like. I know that I'm capable of hardening my heart. There's nothing harder in the universe than the human heart. We have an incredible ability to just steal ourselves and say, I don't care what anybody says. And there's nothing softer in the universe than the heart of Christ. And that's why it's a very great privilege to bring our situation to him and find sympathy and help. But because we're capable of hardening and straying and we're capable of falling into great danger, we need to stir one another up to love and good works. And you should never pretend that a pastor is just a machine, not that you do because you know me, but you should never pretend that a pastor is a machine who just keeps going in the right direction. You should keep saying to me things like, are you repenting? Are you believing? Are you reading your Bible? Are you loving your wife? Are you walking faithfully? And I need to be able to say those things to you, and that's one of the great blessings at morning tea over coffee is to say to one another, how's your walk with Christ going? What have you been learning lately? Do you think this is a year that you're growing? Or is this one of those really slack periods? And we know when we look at one another, we can work out sometimes, can't we, that people are backsliding, they're going through a really cool phase, they're just not the same person that they were. And we need sometimes to work out, Lord, how do I say something that is going to encourage them to pick up and go forward? So this is the wisdom of this Hebrews cardiologist, that if we're to be Christians who are healthy, we need to have daily doing of the word and daily stirring of one another. The shock of the Israelites, of course, is that they did hear the word of God. They heard sermons. They saw miracles but they still sinned, disobeyed, and their waywardness became tragic. Well, please take this excellent and loving medicine, and I'll try and do the same. Fix your mind on Jesus. Don't be surprised if your mind goes everywhere but Jesus, if your faith gets weak. Fix your mind on Jesus, his mission, his stature, and pray that God would give you an inclination to walk closely with him and do guard your heart 
Guard your heart by doing the word and stirring lovingly one another. Let's pray for help. Let's bow our heads. Father, we give you great thanks for this loving and wise word. And we pray that you would help us in the light of it to fix our mind on the Lord Jesus and to take great heart from him. We also pray that you would give us healthy spiritual hearts that are inclined to do your word and also supportive of the fellowship, useful to one another, helpful in stirring one another up. We pray for one another that you would keep us to the end and we pray that we might not just hang on to the end, but that we might run well. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.